it's me, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the host of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. You can find us at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a terrific show for you this week. We're going to talk to frequent contributor Sharon Vane about censorship in high school libraries and beyond. We are often talking to Sharon Vane about censorship because it's an important topic and because it is an ongoing issue in our society. It may not be fun to talk about, but it's important. It's eating your vegetables. Not everything can be the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That said, we're also going to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe this week with contributor Scott Gold, who has reviewed the new MCU show on Disney Plus, Moon Knight. But first, we're going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about the new Michael Bay movie, Ambulance. Also not eating your vegetables. Definitely dessert. Dessert first, then vegetables, then entree. That's the order we're going in uh, this week, and we're going to have a great time. So we'll be right back after this important musical intro. Michael Bay has returned to our screens. Well, at least a movie he's directed has returned to our screens. A very noisy and obnoxious Michael Bay movie. Ambulance is now in theaters. I keep wanting to call it Emergency, but it's not called Emergency. It's called Ambulance. Stephen Garrett has seen Ambulance, and he has reviewed it for us this week. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yeah, you also want to call this thing Emergency. I do. I keep forgetting that it's called Ambulance. And then I look at the poster, and because it takes place in Los Angeles, the L and the A in ambulance are shaded a different color, so it's ambulance, or as they, as our as our Castilian friends call it, ambulancia. ambulancia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but this isn't like a this is not a medical drama. This is like a heist movie. Ah, it's both. I mean, it's everything. It's a Trudokin, right? Like it's a heist movie. It's a like estranged, you know, adoptive siblings drama. It's like it's preposterous. It's hilarious. It's delightful and exhausting. It's a Michael Bay movie. Michael Bay movie, right. So that's that's the thing, right? It's like he, his movies are just so over the top. So, you know, this is kind of a throwback to classic Michael, pre-Transformers Michael Bay, when he was make, making movies like like The Rock and Armageddon, you know, those, all those kind of everything and the kitchen sink kinds of movies. Well, I would go even further back to like Bad Boys, where he didn't really have a name for himself and he was just kind of developing his style and the budgets weren't like ridiculously out of control. You know what I mean? And I imagine, uh, given that this is a Michael Bay movie, that there are lots of exploding vehicles. A lot of exploding produce trucks, a lot of exploding pallets full of uh, shipping cargo. You know, it's like anything that can fly in the air and make a spectacular kind of mess, it explodes when cars hit it. Right. So now we know what to blame the supply chain problems on. (laughs) It's Michael Bay. Right. It's exactly it. All right. So we have um, Jake Gyllenhaal. And Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, you know, these are both like legitimate actors. You know, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II was most recently and memorably in Candyman. Yeah. And he was also, he was also uh, the... Uh, he was the new Morpheus. He's the new Morpheus. And he was also in Watchmen. He was, right. he was the big, the blue guy, who uh, Mr. Wonderful. I don't remember his name at the moment. That's Mr. Wonderful. It wasn't not Mr. Wonderful, but he's the, 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 the blue nuclear superhero. He was that, he was the new version of that. So, you know, and Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, reputation and, and filmography goes way back. So, you know, you have real actors who are 
enjoying the, being in something completely ridiculous. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, they they whatever gravitas you get is from their uh, performances and just them as actors, more more actors and movie stars. You know, I mean, I I've loved Jake Gyllenhaal for a long time, although he tends to love these sweaty, exhausting, manic performances, which are also kind of delightful. But he is very trimmed down, jacked up, and like wild eyed. He must have made this around the same time he made because he was in that um nine one one operator movie, which is a lot less action. It was that uh, the Anton Fuqua movie that came out exactly. Uh, during the pandemic what was that called you I, I saw it i don't remember the name of it i don't remember the name of it either but it also was based on a danish movie just like this so that's a weird thing but yes he's he's a wild-eyed stressed out person in a, a danish remake i really need to stop being an old man and remember the names of these movies anyway i'm just saying that this is a genre of movie that i think it's cheap to make i think it's cheap to make an exploding yeah. truck movie Basically, you got an exploding, sure. exploding truck heist movie with lots of guns, lots of flames. And, and, you know, honestly, like given that everything coming out of Hollywood is some sort of IP. Yeah. Uh, you know, based off of a comic book or or, or, some, or an old TV show. It's kind of nice to see just an old fashioned action pop boiler hit the screens. For sure. And, you know, I'm sure there's some CGI mixed in here, but for the most part, it really feels like these are practical effects stuntmen, you know, um, on the ground, flipping in cars and causing mayhem or bayhem, as I like to call it. Do you know what's also refreshing on your point, too, is that not only this, this is not pre-existing IP, this is not a superhero movie, this is not like CGI larded like crazy. This is uh, a modestly budgeted, completely bombastic movie where the heroes, the real superheroes, hey, are the EMT. They're the cops. They're the firefighters. There's the paramedics. It's the it's the ex-Marines. You know what I mean? Like, I think as cheesy as it is, Michael Bay always is always drawn back to these everyday uh, superheroes of our regular life, which I think is kind of refreshing. It's it is a little like cheesy, but, you know, it's sincere and heartfelt when he does it as ridiculous as it is. And it's nice to be reminded of that. Well, there's a reason why his movies are so popular because you know they're they're full of action, and they do quite they do kind of lionize the regular guy, and we're, we're a lot of, a lot of our movies and a lot of our culture you know does not do that does this kind of does the opposite of that, um, and uh, also there's just a lot of like kind of big operatic, un, totally unearned emotional cues. Absolutely, which you know like like any sort of uh, you know like cheesy uh, commercial that has, pulls at your heartstrings in 30 seconds or less. Like, it, these are all shortcut emotional uh, triggers, you know, that he uses with abandon. And, you know, they are effective in their own weird way, but they're also completely ridiculous. It's just very coked up. Like, he's he's all about, like, what if we do this? What if we do that? I was reading about there's this one uh, big sequence that happens in the L.A., uh, you know, that, that famous area where they shoot uh, car chases by the LA river, which is really just like a, like a, I don't know what you call it. It's not even a canal. It's like a drill dribble of water that goes down part of LA. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. There, 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 there's more, there's more water coming out of my bathroom faucet than there is. In the LA right. River. The so-called LA river, which is a trickle and you know, it pops up in Terminator two. It pops up in Greece. You see it a lot in movies. And of course it's in this. And apparently Michael Bay, you know, dreamed up some sequence on the LA bays in there. 
uh, River Basin uh, at the last minute because suddenly they had the okay to shoot there and he had a couple helicopters. So everybody's like, oh my God, he like pulled it out of his ass. And it feels like he pulled it out of his ass. But then again, you know, nobody else is pulling those sequences out of their ass. So it's fun to see that, you know, who doesn't want to see like two low flying helicopters chasing after an ambulance with Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, shooting off a machine gun at them like this. Uh, it's cheap thrills. Why else do we go to the movies? <laughs> exactly. And also and and very specifically, it is so fun to see that larger than life on a big screen with a great sound system with all the bombast. You're completely immersed. You know, it's like it's fun. All right. Ambulance, not emergency. It's not called emergency. It should have been called emergency, I think. Ambulance that should be emergency, directed by Michael Bay. Stephen, we will talk to you soon. haven't talked about censorship in a little while on the book and film globe week in review podcast unfortunately that's not because censorship has gone away in fact it is stronger than ever and sharon vane who often stops by to talk about these issues is here yet again to talk about certain trends in censorship that are going on and we're glad to have her hello sharon hello thanks for having me although as always i'm sad that the reason I'm here is that book challenges are bigger than ever. Right. So I say censorship, but what we're really talking about uh, in this case is book challenges, which are uh, political challenges to, to basically the library books, to school curriculum. And the American Library Association released a list this week or this past week, and it was their largest list in the 20 years that they've been doing this. Yeah, they um, every uh, year as part of American Library Week, um, they put out a big report on the state of America's libraries. And part of that is the top 10 most challenged books. And then they tally how many complaints that their Office of Intellectual Freedom is tracking. And this year, this year's report, which covers 2021, There were 729 challenges tracked by the American Library Association. It is the highest number of attempted book bans um, since they began compiling the list 20 years ago. And it's more than quadruple from 2020. It, It just crushed all the other numbers. And I think those of us who watch these things and follow the attempts to pull books from student access and from libraries I can't say I'm surprised by the number. It certainly uh, illuminates how widespread this uh, this practice is. Right. And, you know, 20 years ago, books that were getting banned tended to be, it tended to be the same ones over and over again, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, or they were, there was maybe an odd Toni Morrison novel here or there. It changed a little bit. But in recent years, this has become a political movement to try to ban books and certain types of books, right? Yes, I think what we've seen certainly over the past couple of years and definitely this past year is that the books that attract the most attention are dealing with content that groups of far-right parents, in some cases elected officials, have decided this is too problematic, this is too troublesome for our kids to learn about. Last year, 
you know, we saw a lot of LGBTQ content. We also saw a lot of content dealing with history of black people in America that attracted a lot of attention. This year is just straight up LGBTQ and quote unquote sexually explicit content that is topping the list. Um, number one, familiar to anyone who's been following censorship uh, annals this year, Gender Queer, the graphic memoir um, about, you know, a, a non-binary person and their experience as uh, a teen. Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison, which is actually an adult novel, but the American Library Association gave it an award saying it had special appeal for uh, young adults. Um, and regular readers of Book and Film Globe will remember that we talked with Jonathan Evison as well as number four on the list, um, Ashley Hope Perez, the author of Out of Darkness, which is just a constant target. The fact that these books are so familiar shows the playbook from the far right and uh, why we're seeing these titles so frequently. I agree with you that the playbook is kind of coming from the far right, although I don't think it's only the quote unquote far right that is is uncomfortable with these books. I think you're you know they're they're tapping into sort of fears of more mainstream people or even apolitical people um, who are maybe uncomfortable with certain societal changes that these books reflect. I'm not supporting uh, censoring or pulling any book out of any library at any time, but I think the reason that there have been so many challenges is because it's not just the loony right that's going at it. I think that this is a mainstream position now, just like it was a mainstream position to try to censor rap lyrics back in the day when people were trying to do that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous either way. But uh, I think that by, by just placing it on like the far, the fringe, it's not a fringe. This is a mainstream movement or else it wouldn't have, have gotten so large. I mean, yes and no. I think that what's driving it is some really well-organized campaigns that are rooted in far-right conservative parents. I'm thinking about groups like Moms for Liberty or No Left Turn. I will agree that in some cases we're seeing support from some folks who probably wouldn't describe themselves as far-right. I think what we see most consistently is that the complaints about the books cherry pick passages out. They use really charged language. We see a lot of the use of the word grooming, use of the word pedophile, use of the word pornography. Now, none of these things are actually what's happening with these books, but I think a lot of parents might see those words and, you know, feel that little physical reaction of, wait a second, is there pornography in my kid's library? Do I need to take a look at that? And without reading the, all of these books in their entirety and really considering what context some of these references are made in, it's easy to sort of look at a passage or look at a sentence and find yourself you know, agreeing with folks who want to pull the books. Um, Out of Darkness is a great example. Traditionally, we we hear the quote that gets pulled out of that book is a lot of really sort of coarse language about, oh, I want to do this to this girl and want to do that to that girl. And the chapter that it's included in is, you know, what this Latin girl had to experience, things shouted at her by these awful classmates and sort of the abuse she suffered verbally of what they were thinking. So it's not as though they actually are supporting it um, in the book. Um, 
just because something's included in a book doesn't mean the book is promoting that. Um, you really have to consider the context. Right. And so here's, here's what I was going to say about all this is that, you know, there's this idea among the people who would um, censor or pull books off of shelves uh, or who would challenge them, as they say, there's this idea that these books are driving the culture and are influencing kids to pursue certain lifestyles or certain behaviors when, to my mind, they're merely reflecting what's actually going on. And you have, yes, in communities, liberal communities like you and I live in in Austin or elsewhere, it's more normal and, and common to see uh, transgender children, people talking about their transgender children on, on Facebook or, or wherever, or talking about issues of race and class and sex. But these, these things are also going on in conservative communities as well. And a younger generation is experiencing these things. And these books are merely a reflection of their reality they're not they're not driving it they're not creating it absolutely um you know i know in some of the interviews that we've seen with uh you know maya kababi the author of gender queer and george johnson the author of all boys aren't blue which is number three on the new list both of these are memoirs about growing up, you know, queer or questioning they were reflecting their own reality and, you know, they probably did nothing but read books about straight white people and it didn't make them straight. Right. So I think the argument is so it's as though just reading about something will all of a sudden turn the kids gay or make the kids, you know, think a certain way. It may make kids consider experiences other than their own, which I think is a great thing and what we can look forward to from education. That's the whole, but the whole point of reading. Well, exactly. You don't want to just read books about um, people exactly like yourself. I do think, you know, I loved that word used reflect. Um, there's that famous quote from educator Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop that talks about how kids books or young adult books um, have to be mirrors, windows and sliding glass doors. Right. It's reflecting your reality. You're, you're seeing through to the way other people live and kind of getting a little bit of a sense of what it's like to live as someone different than yourself. But imagine going through your I always use the analogy of I'm a straight white lady. What if I went through my entire schooling and never read a book in which a straight white girl, uh, straight white Jewish girl was included in anything I read. Even when we grew up, that was that's literally impossible. Right, exactly. But this is what I mean, you think about how many students are out there who, you know, are queer or students who are Hispanic, students who are black, students who are Muslim. They like might get one bite at the apple, right? They might get one story in or one novel that maybe they get to pick off of a whole choice list. Um you know, when you start twisting the frame through which you see what is quote unquote classic or normal or what kinds of stories we need to have in libraries, I mean, libraries are designed to have something for everyone. It doesn't mean that every single book has to appeal to every single person. The book that's wrong for your family or wrong for your kid may be just right for another one. Well, and again, I feel like these parents are trying to stop the march of, of pure demography. You know, it's probably what it's comes down to. Like I said, these, the literature reflects a changing society. It's one thing to 
you know, to encourage your kids to read books that promote good ethical behavior and tolerance and, you know, and whatever. There, there's a lot of, there are, there are decent conservative values, but a lot of times this is just, uh, is just a mask for, for fear, fear of change. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not down with it. I know you're not down with it. And Book and Film Globe is never, never in favor of uh, censorship or book bans of any kind. I wanted to switch uh, gears real quick and talk to you about this phenomenon of soft censorship that you wrote about in, in Book and Film Globe a few weeks ago, but we did get a chance to talk about on the show. What do you mean when you talk about soft censorship in literature? Well, it's one of the things that doesn't make the news the way a really viral book ban does or, you know, a, a person standing at a school board meeting, um, you know, pulling out salacious, what they say are salacious passages. These are situations where it could be anything from a library is not going to purchase certain books because they're afraid of that kind of very public pushback. Or it could be that at festivals and events, either certain authors don't get invited or certain books of theirs don't get talked about. One of the authors who has had this happen most recently is uh, Brandy Colbert, who um, has written an award-winning nonfiction account for young people of the Tulsa race massacre. It's called Blackbirds in the Sky. And she was invited to a, uh, a school district festival that was, interestingly enough, devoted to African-American literature. And just days before the event was supposed to happen, her, her publishing team was asked by the organizers, hey, can you not talk about blackbirds in the sky? And they pushed back and said, well, what's the problem with that one? And they just said it could be too controversial was the word they used. And they agreed that she could talk about it, but originally they had said that they would purchase copies of each presenter's books to uh, disseminate in the schools. And they said they wouldn't buy the book because uh, it would cause too much pushback. So she ended up declining to participate in the event because she felt like, how can we censor? It's a historical event. One of the most important historical events in Black American history. And, you know, it's like, it's almost like parents and districts are afraid to send their kids to school because they might learn something. Well, that's it. I think a lot of parents would prefer that students learn exactly what they learned, because when you learn about some of, I mean, the Tulsa Race Massacre is a great example of something I learned about as a grown-up, um, in part because it was included in a fiction book. As a result, I you know, started reading a little bit more about it. If you're a kid and you learn about something like that, maybe you're going to come home and start asking questions about how something like this could happen. And some parents don't want to have those uncomfortable conversations. Um, but acknowledging that uncomfortable things happened in the past doesn't mean that, you know, we, we can't go forward in a, in a better path. There's some sense out there that just acknowledging that these things happened is sometimes somehow going to ruin their children or it's too much for their children. We see this um, a lot. One of the recent big high profile book bans um, also in Texas um, uh, was Mouse um, that happened in Tennessee as well as um, in suburban Houston. They wanted to pull Mouse, the you know Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel about the Holocaust, saying it was 
too tough for, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers to read when that same book is on the governor's appointed commission, Holocaust commission approved a list of texts for students to learn from. So didn't, when you really start digging into this, it just doesn't make any sense. Didn't we learn about the Holocaust in middle school and high school? I mean, are we supposed to pretend like it didn't happen? I think maybe we are. <laughs> well, sometimes in Texas we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, uh, it's, all, it's always on my mind. <laughs> just shows you how my days go. Well, hopefully someday we can look back on this, uh, this, this wave of censorship and if not laugh, at least shake our head at, at, at the moral panic, the endless unscrolling moral panic before our eyes. I just, I just don't get it. You know, I, you know, you raised kids, I raised a kid and I feel like, you know, the more you can teach your kids about as soon as possible, the better. And, you know, nothing should be off the table, but uh, you know, I'm not running curricular development for the state of Texas. It's all age appropriate, right? I think there's this, again, you know, the political rhetoric, you know, makes it seem like, oh, in kindergarten, they're trying to encourage children to, you know, turn gay and, you know, become drag queens when, you know, actually, I mean, the only thing that's happening in kindergartens is, hey, we appreciate different kinds of families and families can look different, you know, it's like some, some are like this, some are like that. It's just super simple, super basic. And, you know, the conversation in elementary school is very different from the conversations in high school. And ignoring something doesn't mean kids aren't going to find out about it later. All right. Sharon Vane, once again, on the censorship, the book banning, the book challenging, the book denying beat for us. Uh, we'll talk to you soon about something related to this, maybe, or maybe something else. Maybe we'll talk about something else next time. That would be nice. It would be intriguing to to get to talk about something that uh, isn't sort of the, 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 the slow morass of uh, removal of access to all kinds of books, but... We'll be, we'll be on the beat. You know, we're letting people know what's going on. So uh, I stand ready. All right. Thank you, Sharon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Marvel Cinematic Universe never stops putting out content. We rarely go a week or two without fresh Marvel material. And a new show, a new show has appeared on Disney Plus called Moon Knight. And, you know, this is a very uh, obscure character even by Marvel standards, but Moon Knight has his own show now. And Scott Gold wrote about it this week on Book and Film Globe and is here with me today to talk about it. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the show. Yes, yeah, so uh, I've been watching Moon Knight. I, I, I don't. I'm a Marvel completist. That's the, my one. That's the one sort of big pop culture thing that I, I don't miss any of. But I turned it over to you because the main character is played by Oscar Isaac, who is not an actor that I am particularly fond of. So I I didn't know if I was going to get to be objective about this show. But you were objective, and you had uh, good things to say about Moon Knight. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a really 
challenging character, which is probably why we've never seen it on TV or film until now. There's a lot, I mean, there's just a whole minefield full of tropes and cliches and unfilmable stuff that nobody probably wanted to deal with uh, until now. Plus the fact that nobody really knew who Moon Knight was. So you're not like really capitalizing on a fan base any larger than like diehard comic readers, but they got it going and they've uh, definitely generated some excitement. And I think largely for good reason, they've done really, really good job for the most part with this character and the show. Yeah, you know, I would agree. And I mean, like I said, I don't like Oscar Isaac, who plays the main character, but the show itself is quite entertaining. And the main character is this guy who has like a dissociative personality disorder, basically. But in addition to that, he's also the avatar on Earth for the Egyptian god of death, Khonsu, who, despite being the god of death, is actually a good guy. So when you say complicated, it you know, it is because Oscar Isaac is playing multiple characters, but he's also kind of a, a super god. Yeah, it's uh, it's really complicated in the fact that, you know, you have uh, Mark Spector, who the interesting thing is. So you have this character and we can refer to him by various names, but uh, the original identity is Mark Spector. Now, we're introduced to the character as Stephen Grant, which is an alter of Mark. But um you know, we have several alternate identities to deal with, plus Moon Knight, who's, you know, the costume vigilante superhero, kind of similar a little bit to Batman. If, you know, Batman had multiple personalities and was possessed by an ancient Egyptian god of the moon. And could fly. Yeah, there's a, uh, I mean, I don't know if he can fly. I think it's a cape thing, but, uh, you know, it's all, you know, comic book stuff. But, you know, it's it's very complicated because, you know, you have to deal with the dissociative identity disorder stuff and the fact that Mark is never fully on sure footing with his own mind. Like he is a broken, fractured person, which is why the character was taken advantage of, some say, by this god who can use him as his avatar on Earth to fight injustice and go after bad guys and do the things that gods want humans to do. But he's a handy person to do that because he's also like a trained mercenary and a killer and a spy. Yeah, he's got the skills. He has access to resources, whereas Stephen Grant, who's the character we needed uh, as Oscar Isaac, is kind of like this weird, nerdy, British intellectual. We, we learn more about him in the second episode. Like He's obviously very learned. He can speak French. You know, he's got he has he has his own set of skills, but he is presented in the first couple of episodes as this incredibly neurotic milk toast. I mean, super annoying character. Oh, he's a schmuck. I mean, I think there's no better word for it. I mean, and because Mark Spector uh, canonically is Jewish, I think it's imperative that we employ some Yiddish insults because uh, as depicted here, Stephen Grant is uh, he's a total putz. Like he is not a, he's a schmuck. He's a he's a putz. He's a schmo. He's a schmageggy. He's a schlemiel. You know, it's uh, all of them, all of the, all of the 800 yeah. words uh, in Yiddish for penis. Like he's <laughs> yeah, he's all of them, uh, which is really fascinating because and it's a it's a choice that they made. And I think partially Oscar Isaac made. And I think he had to convince the showrunners and everybody to do this. You know what any British person would say is a you know comically bad uh, Cockney accent. Because Stephen Grant in the source material is about the farthest thing from this character as can possibly be. He's in the comics. He's a suave, handsome, rich, millionaire, playboy movie producer. 
which this guy is like clearly not. He's a nerdy museum clerk, as they say in London. Yeah. So I, you know, so yeah, Stephen Grant in the comic books is like like a Bruce Wayne type character, and then there's like a there is a Cockney character, but he's like a cabbie who's who's got his eyes and ears on the ground, right? Like he's he's uh, so th- there is that that version of it. So yeah, it's a curious choice. I mean. It works fine for the show, because, but the first episode is basically taken up with this mystery as Stephen is not aware of the presence of this Egyptian god. And so he's just sort of gradually discovers who he is. Right. And as far as, you know, the origin story and how this all goes, it's, you know, it's a really fun and fascinating trope to be a part of where you're, you know, you get to know this character and he's kind of this, you know, putz, you know, who is like, you know, his boss is this, you know, awful, demeaning shrew of a woman clearly the most you know unlikable person ever and you know he's got he's got no empowerment at all he's just this nerdy kind of as you said milk toast kind of guy who learns that he's a superhero right and he has all these other personalities and all the complications that come with that but that discovery by the nerdy guy that they have superpowers is like one of the most quintessential hero tropes because it's wish fulfillment for all of us right like we all kind of feel like this kind of powerless person every now and again uh in our lives speak for yourself but i know you're a real life superhero neil I, I can't relate to you whatsoever but for me and a lot of people i know uh, there's a lot of wish fulfillment going on where you kind of discover that you're suddenly, you know, this superpowered person. And there's something of that in there. But the interesting thing for me is I was just toying over in my mind if one has dissociative identity disorder, usually the alters are there to protect the main identity in some way. So why would a person um, that's relatively powerful create an identity that's such a lowly nerd? Um, well, he's got some, he's got some intellectual gifts as we've learned. So at some point he's going to have to solve a puzzle or, you know, do an equation or speak a language or something because Mark is kind of a dunderhead, you know, he's a muscle man. So, um, you know, he's got this, uh, his wife is a beautiful, intelligent woman, uh, you know, who obviously is attracted to his masculinity, but Steven shares some of her qualities so uh, there's something going on there. I don't know what it is. I don't really care, honestly. But it's going to unfold. We should talk about uh, the villain, though. The villain of the piece, played by Ethan Hawke, who is absolutely terrific in this. Yeah, I thought he's fantastic. And uh, you know, there's a part of me who's always, you know, going to be a little biased against him because I hated his character in Reality Bites, and that was my first uh, Ethan Hawke experience. But uh, you know, he clearly made up for that in subsequent films and uh, and his work. Uh, I thought it was a curious choice because, you know, I still kind of see him as this 90s heartthrob, but uh, we're not in the 90s anymore. We've come a long way. And so has he. And it turns out to be a really, really appropriate choice for casting. And he kills it uh, because he plays this cult leader for another rival Egyptian god, Amit, who is the, the soul, the soul eater, you know, about his scary as you could possibly get. All these Egyptian gods are uh, more than a little bit terrifying. Uh, but that's a, a particularly terrifying one. And he is Amit's uh, avatar here on Earth, and he's grown this cult up around him. And uh, he possesses the necessary traits for a cult leader. You know, he's a polyglot, he's intelligent, he's charming, but there's something sinister and a little bit dead behind his eyes. And when Stephen, we finally get a scene in which Stephen 
and Harrow, Arthur Harrow is the character's name. They finally have a conversation. You can kind of see, you know, where that evil lives. And it's a, it's a really powerful and fascinating scene. And I think he's going to make for an excellent villain. Agreed. And he also, let us not uh, forget, he has the power with the magic staff to pound the floor and summon up a semi-scary looking CGI dog. Yeah, jackals coming out of the, the other sphere or other world. or It's a dog. It's just a scary dog. It's a dog guy kind of thing. It's some sort of hybrid. I don't know. It's a scary monster coming out of nowhere. That's what he can yeah, do. Yeah, but Moon Knight, right. Moon Knight doesn't have any trouble killing these dogs. This is not the boss battle. Yeah, and I think the ultimate boss battle for this character is himself, and that's going to be a big part of the show. And it's a big part of the character is that, you know, his challenges are equal with his own fractured mind as they are with whatever, you know, big bad evil guy he's, uh, you know, going to battle with today. So it's a, it's, he's a very complicated hero trying to keep all of these things straight, introducing other personalities. It is not an easy task for someone to put on screen, but so far I think they're doing a really good job. They're using some kind of tired visual cues and uh, vis- you know visual language for dis- you know dissociative identity disorder a lot of mirrored surfaces and fractured yeah mirrors. it's like there are mirrors everywhere everything's a mirror right but but yeah okay yes is it you know uh, a masterpiece of avant-garde cinema no is it a, a an entertaining comic book show yeah it is and you know marvel once again has managed to take uh, an obscure character and make him a pop him or her in this case him a pop culture icon so uh moon knight is airing now on disney plus episode two is already up and uh, we will start seeing more episodes starting next week scott thank you so much for uh, talking to me about it for writing about it for the site thank you so much it's been a real joy to write about the mcu for you and i thought what i felt was simple and i thought Thanks, Scott. Moon Knight is on Disney Plus now. And also thanks to Sharon Vane for talking to me about trends in censorship. Let's hope they don't continue, but they probably will. And also thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about trends in Michael Bay movies, which will also probably continue. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Unlike Moon Knight, as far as I know, I only have one identity, and that is the identity of the greatest living American writer. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you so much for reading the website. I really appreciate it. We will talk to you soon. I thought I'd live forever, but now I'm not so sure you try to tell me that I'm clever. That won't take me anyhow or anywhere with you. You said that I was naive Would you like to see my crescent sword? I don't know where I am.
I think I have a sleeping disorder. Oh, me goodness. <laughs> I can't figure out why I'm doing all these things. I'm Stephen Grant. I like at a gift shop. Well, have you got this, fab? <laughs> I'm going to be doing that all day now. My wife is going to kill me. Original production. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.